This is the evening sermon from Hillcrest Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. For more information on Hillcrest Bible Church, please visit our website at hillcrestbible.org. Well, good evening, and thank you for braving the heat and coming to spend the evening with the rest of us. I trust we'll be blessed by the word this evening. Um, as you all know, last Sunday, at least most of you, I believe, were here last Sunday morning, and we looked at Revelation chapter 5 and the song of the redeemed there in Revelation chapter 5. And we saw the Lamb take the scroll from the Ancient of Days because the Lamb is worthy. And as you may remember, He is worthy because He has faithfully carried out the transaction precedent. We dubbed it. And that is the transaction of redemption. And so because Jesus Christ, the Lamb, has faithfully carried out this work of redemption... He is qualified, he is worthy, he is trusted to carry out this transaction ultimate, which is this final judgment that God is bringing on the earth as he ushers in his eternal kingdom and brings everything under his rule. And because the Lamb is so worthy to do that work and to receive that scroll, he is worshipped in Revelation chapter 5 with this wonderful song uh, between verses 9 and 14. And we looked at that last Sunday morning, and we saw that the song begins with 24 elders singing the worth of the Lamb. And then the song grows, and it grows again, and it grows into this crescendo of praise, uh, where the entire angelic host, myriads upon myriads and thousands beyond those myriads, are gathered around. And everything in heaven and in earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything that moves and breathes, is joining in this song of worship to the Lamb. And it comes to that third stanza where they say together, blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb for forever and ever. And then we saw how the song hushes and you just hear the echo of these four creatures repeatedly saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the 24 elders fall down on their faces and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And that, that scene um, is a scene of staggering awe. And it's awesome because of the throne and the Ancient of Days on the throne. And it's awesome because of the Lamb standing before the throne. And it's awesome because of the scroll that represents essentially the title deed to the kingdom of God and its seven seals and the handing of that scroll, the commissioning of the Lamb for this transaction ultimate. Um, And immediately following that very dramatic scene there in the heavenlies, uh, beginning in chapter 6 of Revelation, the seven seals on the scroll are broken. And as they're broken and the scroll is opened, uh, those seven seals of veracity, of authenticity, of significance and importance, um, those are broken and the judgments begin with each of those. And then inside the seventh seal, we talked about how there are the seven trumpets. And inside the seventh trumpet, there are the seven bowls of wrath. And the judgments of God just kind of keep expanding from the inside out and cascading forward as he brings his judgments on the earth. Tonight, I want to take as my text another passage here in Revelation, another song. This is Revelation chapter 15. It's a short short chapter, but one that is pivotal, I believe, in understanding the flow of prophecy here in the book of Revelation. 
Um, and this song comes between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Or perhaps it would be better to say that it comes at the end of the seventh trumpet, right before the seventh trumpet expands into the seven bowls. So there's this cascading event, a series of events that goes from about the middle of Revelation 11, where the seventh seal is opened, uh, sorry, where the seventh trumpet sounds, all the way into the beginning of this chapter 15. And then you have this chapter 15 kind of as the final step inside that seventh trumpet, setting the stage for the seven bowls. And that's what this song uh, is about here. So in this chapter 15 of Revelation, I want us to look at the scene, which unfolds in verses 1 and 2. I want us to look at the song, which is in the verses that follow down through verse 4. So that's verses 3 and 4. And then I want us to see the Shekinah glory of God. So the scene, the song, and the Shekinah. And that flows from uh, verse 5 down through the end of the chapter. And that's what we'll look at tonight. And it's all, again, in the context of the preparation for the pouring out of these seven bowls of wrath. Uh, the bowls of, that are full of the wrath of God, the one who lives forever and ever. So if you're not already there, turn with me, please, to Revelation 15, and we will read that together. Verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete or finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, or deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested or revealed. And after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony, or probably better translated, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple or the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So the first thing I want us to notice here in these opening verses as we look at the scene that unfolds here is that much like in uh, chapters 4 and 5, John wants us to visualize some pieces of what is transpiring here. He no doubt has a much crisper vision than any of us will ever have, but what is revealed here is for us to understand, and so we should wrestle with these details of the setting or the scene. And the first thing we see here is... um, I think, the location of the event. And if you were to go back to chapter 11, the middle of chapter 11, where all these events begin to cascade inside the seventh trumpet, you would see that John, has his vision has been directed in multiple places. He's seen a war in heaven. 
He has seen a beast rising out of the sea. He has seen another beast rising out of the earth. He's seen the lamb standing on Mount Zion. He's seen the son of man sitting on a cloud and thrusting his sickle into the earth. And he's seen many other things. So his view again has been wherever the action is, so to speak, as God directs his, his vision. Um, but in this particular scene, again, as in chapter four and chapter five, the action is in heaven and it's in the heavens where uh, he is focused and that's what he sees. Now that's the place or the location. It's, it's this, it's the heaven and we'll see it's, it's the throne room of God. And I think the second thing to note here is the importance of the scene. John says it is great and marvelous. And that's a special uh, comment that he makes here with respect to this scene. And the word for great is megas. should sound similar to a prefix that we use, mega, in our language. And, and it comes from a similar root. And so the concept is it, it's extremely large, very great and wonderful. The marvelous word is wonderful. It passes human comprehension. And I can only imagine that after everything John has seen in chapters 1 through 14, if he takes the time and feels the urgency under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to note that this particular scene is great and marvelous, as if in comparison to all the others, this must have been a marvelous and amazing scene Indeed, so it's a very significant scene. It's an important one. It's amazing to the point of staggering is the sense of some of these words to the point of not being able to wrap your mind around what it is that you're seeing here. So that's the significance or the importance of the scene. And then we see at the end of verse 1 here, these seven angels with the seven last plagues, and they are the very last plagues. They are seven bowls of wrath. And if you went on and read chapter 16, you would see those seven bowls poured out in rapid fire succession on the earth. And after those, Babylon will fall and there will be the marriage supper of the lamb, the millennium, the final rebellion, the final victory, the great white throne, the new heavens and new earth. So there are many things still yet to unfold in the prophecy here in Revelation. But this is the last, these seven bowls will be the last of the pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth prior to his establishment of his kingdom. So that's what we have John here seeing. In heaven, it's a very amazing, a mega amazing scene um, in which there are these seven angels with these seven final judgments that will be poured out on the earth. And I think verse 1 there is is really a... Um, a summation statement, uh, sort of the executive summary, if you will, of the rest of this vision in chapter 15. So John now is going to back up as he goes into verse 2 and give us a little bit more detail. And we'll come back to the angels, uh, but those will kind of show up a little bit later in this scene. But this is the scene of the seven angels or the sign of the seven angels. So he gives this introduction in verse 1 and then backs up a little to continue uh, painting the picture. And as he does that, if you look at verse 2, you see this sea of glass mixed with fire or mingled with fire. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 4, where that first shows up, you see that that is around the throne of God. So again, that's how we know that this is not only in the heavens, but it's actually um, at the throne of God. And so there's this sea of glass. And when it's first mentioned in Revelation 4, there's no comment made about it being fiery. But here it's mentioned as being a fiery-looking sea of glass. 
And I think that begins to alert us to the fact that this is going to be a scene not just of divine glory, but also of judgment and wrath. And especially when you combine that with the tail end of verse 1, it's pretty obvious what the emphasis here is going to be. Final judgments are in view. Uh, And that image of fire is pretty consistent throughout Scripture. It it, it symbolizes other things, such as the presence of God, although even there it often is the presence of God with a purifying effect. Uh, But many times in Scripture, fire represents the judgment of God, and we see that beginning with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, and it goes all the way to Babylon in Revelation and her smoke ascending forever and ever. So it's often referring to God's judgment, and we're put on notice of that here at the beginning of this verse too. That that's what this scene will be about. And then John says there are these individuals who are standing on, your translation may say beside, uh, but some translations, mine says on. I prefer that rendering. And sometimes the prepositions are difficult. Uh, and I'm no, no original uh, scholar, so I have to go with, uh, with the best I can from the commentators I look at and the translations I prefer. But I think standing on this sea around the throne is probably the best rendering And he doesn't name these individuals. There are many other places throughout the book of the Revelation where he says the martyrs or the saints. And he gives them a name. He doesn't really do that here, but he describes them with a trait, a single trait. And that trait is that they are conquerors. They are overcomers. They are victors. So they've engaged in some sort of a difficult conflict and they've emerged from that conflict victorious. They have prevailed. Then he tells us a little bit in the second part of that verse, or kind of in the middle of it there, verse 2, about the victory, a little bit of what the conflict was and what they conquered. Um, And this gets a little bit difficult as we begin to look at the descriptions and, and events here in Revelation. But he says that in this conflict, they've overcome four things. You may have noticed that when you read it the first time. They've overcome the beast... They've overcome its image. They have overcome uh, its mark. And they have overcome its name or the number of its name. And those things are a pretty direct reference back to chapters 12 and 13 where a dragon is introduced. And in chapter 12, that dragon is identified as Satan and he is thrown down to the earth. Uh, Woe to the earth because he has come down to you. It's a significant event in the unfolding of this prophecy. And uh, then we also see that there's a beast that arises, the first beast, he's called. uh, And he is worshipped by men because he has all of the authority and power of the dragon delegated to him. So we have the dragon identified. That's Satan. Chapter 12 is clear on that. Uh, most students of the book of Revelation believe that the first beast to whom is delegated all this authority and power of the dragon on earth is the Antichrist. Um, he's a human, uh, but he is a powerful representative, a representative of Satan here on earth. And then if, as you move through chapter 13, there's a second beast that arises. It's described as his image. Um, And this second beast exercises all the power and authority of the first beast. So you've got a second level of delegation of all this power and authority going on. And the task of this image or representative or second beast is to cause people to worship the dragon and the first beast. That's his task. And 
in the event someone refuses to worship, he is authorized and aggressively pursues their martyrdom. So his task is to convert or kill, essentially, those uh, who would refuse to worship the dragon and the dragon's representative on earth, the Antichrist. And you can see that martyrdom element come in in chapter 13 and verse 15. Um, And then right immediately following that, this forcing of those who remain to receive a mark. So he kind of has these three elements, or four you could say, cause them to worship, three, if cause them to worship, if they do not worship, cause them to die, if they worship and live, cause them to bear this mark. And he places this mark on them. And all the, the commerce and the ability to buy and sell and the ability even to just obtain the basic necessary things for life are dependent upon having that mark. And that mark is on the right hand or on the forehead. And the mark is made up of the beast's name. So in a, in a very demonic way, similar to how a cattleman might brand his, his herd, the image... The representative uh, here on earth is going around placing his mark of ownership and authority and identity and control on the population of the whole earth. And then as part of that mark or that brand, there is a number and that number is tied to his name. And if you look right at the end of chapter 13, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding count the number of the beast. It is the number of a man. His number is 666. And as you know, there's a lot of superstition around that number. And if people look down at their odometer or their grocery store receipt and they see that number, they they get a little panicked sometimes. Um, But the text does not say that there's any need for superstition. It it, it says there's a need for wisdom, a need for understanding. And it says, um, John says here that the important thing to know about this number is that it's the number of a man. It represents humanity. Um, and especially, I think, represents this second beast or image who seems to be human. And John MacArthur um, has suggested that the key meaning of the number six in this number is that it's not seven. It's not perfection. It's the measure of humanity, which is falling short, falling short of who God is and what he requires. But it's close. Right? It's, a, it's, it's man's attempt and a demonically empowered attempt at a proxy for perfection. But it doesn't get there. And he says that, uh, he, he writes, quote, This represents human imperfection. Antichrist, who's the most powerful human the world will ever know, will still be a man. That is, a six. The ultimate in human and demonic power is a six. Never perfect. Um, and some people think that the repetition of the six just denotes um, kind of the, the insistence of this fraudulent attempt at perfection, this phony um, replica of perfection. Others say that because there are these three different members of this unholy trinity, if you will, this demonic mockery of the divine trinity, where you have Satan, who clearly equates to wanting to be like God, and you have the Antichrist, who's empowered by and works under the authority of the dragon, Satan, and and is Antichrist. And then you have this image, a representative, that points to the worship of these other two and tries to draw men to their worship and is also given equal power by delegation. And so in in that respect, kind of mocking or uh, paralleling the righteous work of the Holy Spirit on earth in pointing men to Christ. Um, So it could be that kind of this unholy trinity in the 666 representing those three 
members uh, there of that trinity. It's just some you know, wicked attempt, in a sense, to, to replicate um, who God is and the work is, that he is doing. Um, but at any rate, if we go back over to Revelation chapter 15, that was a significant side trail there. But what we see that's so encouraging is that this satanic um, trinity fails to conquer the people of God. Because here they are standing on the sea of glass, this fiery sea of glass, and they have overcome. They have overcome the beast. They have overcome the image. They've overcome his mark. They have overcome his number. And they've overcome him, we know from another uh, source here in the book of Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and at the cost of their lives. Because I think if John is seeing them here uh, in heaven, they are martyrs. Uh, in overcoming, they were martyred. It says actually in chapter 12 and verse 11 uh, that some of these individuals loved not their lives even unto death. So I think they would fall into the category that Hebrews 11 says uh, did not accept deliverance so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And here they are. They've overcome and they have in their hands these harps of God and they're prepared to worship in song. So that's the scene. You have this amazing great, awesome scene in heaven on this fiery sea of glass. And these individuals who have overcome and they are standing on the sea, they've overcome the satanic power of the beast and they have these harps and they're about to sing. And that brings us to the song itself, which is the second major section I wanted us to look at here tonight in verses 3 and 4. It says that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And with respect to this song, I think there's some debate as to whether uh, it, it is one song or if it's referring to two different songs. Are they singing two songs? The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? Or are they singing the song that is both the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb? Uh, which of those is it? And uh, my take on that is um, yes. I think, I think it's both. Uh, and there are a couple of ways that I get there, and I don't have a lot of time to go into that tonight. But um, I believe that this is a point in the, the progressive revelation of God where the redeemed are being uh, together brought into his full and final kingdom. And so you have the merging, if you will, of the strains of worship of the redeemed across all the years, across all the progressive revelation of God and across the covenants. So you have those who are redeemed by Christ, their songs merging together. So it is two songs, historically distinct and separate in when they arose, and yet here they become one. I think they merge together here. And I was recently reading with, um, with the family in Exodus 14 and 15 about the deliverance that God gave to Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. And after they've passed through on dry ground and they turn and they look and they see the Egyptians coming, they notice that the wheels begin to fall off of the chariots and they're dragging heavily. And the Egyptians realize what's happening and they say, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord is fighting for them. But before they can get out of the middle of the sea, as we know, the waters come back and they're all drowned. And the next thing um, Israel knows, all of Pharaoh's mighty army is washed up on the shore. So Moses and the children of Israel sing this song. They sing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. And then the song continues from there. I think that is the song of Moses that's being referenced here. We know about Psalms, uh, one in particular written by Moses. But I think this is a reference to the song of deliverance that God gave to Moses at the Red Sea. And essentially that song is a song of praise for deliverance from enemies. And that deliverance comes by way of God pouring out judgment on their enemies. So you might begin to see a parallel there between what we're looking at over in Revelation 15. And not only is the deliverance by way of God pouring out his judgment on their enemies, they themselves are delivered from that same judgment by the miraculous power of God, having chosen them as his people and bringing them out. And especially with respect to the 10th plague, they're delivered from suffering that same judgment by the Passover lamb. And so that's where I believe the join is trying to kind of condense this down over into the song of the lamb. Because that song, I think, is the song we looked at last week. The worthy lamb who was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood. And that Revelation 5 song says that he has made us a kingdom of priests. He's called forth this people to himself. And so these saints, I think, are standing on this fiery sea. And uh, they are able to say, we too can sing that song, that song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They're coming together as one. We too have received a great deliverance from our enemies by way of these awesome judgments that God is pouring out. And we have been delivered from suffering those same judgments because of the Lamb and because of the redemption that we have in Him. So they say we rejoice too. We also can say we sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. That's the end of Moses' song. So I think that's what we see here is the song of redemption uh, becoming one song across all of the dispensations, if you will, or all of the progressive revelation in the covenants and how God has worked with his people over time. So it's one song, the two songs having become one. And I think we have that song here then in verses 3 and 4 where it says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Great and marvelous. Again, the exact same words that are used in verse 1. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed or made manifest, or made known and placed into effect. And like a good Christian song does, this song extols the character of God, and it also extols the conduct of God. In His person and in His ways, and we see Him praised here, or you could say both in His action and in His character. He is great, again it says, He is marvelous, He is just, he is voracious. That is, he is to be trusted. He is beyond measure, beyond comprehension. He is equitable. He is true to his own nature. 
and he is fearsome. He is glorious. And even though several different characteristics of God are praised here, I think there's one in particular that stands out. It kind of is set on its own. There's a particular singularity used here to describe this characteristic of God. And that um, is in the middle of verse 4, where it says, For you alone are holy. So God is distinguished from all other beings by many things, but chief among them, most unique among them, is His holiness. That is the way in which He is most notably distinguished from every other being. He is holy. He alone is truly, innately holy. And so what I think we see here in this song is we see God's awesome greatness combined with His perfect equity and self-consistency. When it says, true are your ways, it's talking about an alignment, that His behavior is aligned with His character. So He is equitable and He is self-consistent and He is great and powerful. And you take those two things and you put them over this foundation of an unparalleled holiness. And when you have the power and greatness of God with His equity, his rightness, his self-consistency, and his holiness, that leads to an unparalleled fearsomeness. All persons will fear, the song says. It's posed as a question. It's a rhetorical question. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? All persons will fear. All nations will come and worship because the judgments of God these equitable decrees of God by which he remains self-consistent with his own holy nature must be carried out. These equitable punishments, they have the full force of God's law and authority and character behind them and they're being made manifest, they're being revealed here. So these final judgments in these seven bowls that are held by these seven angels, they will bring all persons and all nations to their knees. The holiness of God is about to be fully and finally vindicated. So that's the song that's sung by these overcomers who stand on this fiery sea of glass. It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. I would say it's the song of those who belong to God by virtue of the blood of the Lamb. They've been delivered again from their enemies by this righteous vindication. The self-consistency of God requires this judgment upon sin. And Firstly, that delivers them from their enemies. And secondly, they themselves are delivered from that same judgment by the grace of God. So they praise him in this song that ends at the end of verse 4 there. Because his final judgments are being made manifest. And that uh, brings us to verse 5. And from there down to the end of verse 8. This is where I believe we see the Shekinah glory of God. I believe that's what we have here. Uh, I'm sure you recall... At the completion of the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness when it was dedicated, that the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God so much so that no one could enter the tabernacle. Exodus 40 verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then we see that Shekinah glory again when Solomon's temple is dedicated. 
First Kings eight and verse 10 says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Ezekiel sees the same thing in Ezekiel 43 and 44 when he receives the vision of the temple in the heavenlies. He sees uh, the glory of the Lord filling the temple of the Lord and he says, I fell on my face. So I think we see in scripture these points in time when a, a true place of worship is dedicated. First the tabernacle and then the temple and then in the heavenlies uh, what Ezekiel saw in his vision. You see the glory of the Lord fill that place so much so that the human... I cannot bear to behold it, and a human cannot bear to enter into it. And that's also then what we have happening here in Revelation chapter 15. If you were to go back to chapter 11 in Revelation, you would see that the temple or the tabernacle is already itself open. There were lightnings and voices, thunderings and an earthquake and a great hail. So the associated with that opening. So I think it's been open for some chapters here already, but now there's a new opening that happens here. He saw that it was opened. And uh, my King James here says that it is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony that is opened. Uh, but I think it's probably a better translation, and your translation may have this. It says the sanctuary or the holy place. So, the tabernacle in the heavenlies is itself already open, but now the holy place opens. And just like we read about with the priests leaving the holy place with Solomon's dedication, we have these seven angels exiting the holy place. And as they exit the holy place, the Shekinah glory of God fills it. So these seven angels come forth and their white clothing, I think, symbolizes the holiness of God. And with the golden bands uh, that they're wearing, these girdles or, or uh, bands, I think those represent their priestly service. So they're exiting these angels, the, the true heavenly tabernacle, which we read about in Hebrews, where it says that the earthly temple and tabernacle were just a shadow of the true heavenly one. There is a true heavenly tabernacle and these seven angels in this role of priestly service are exiting from there um, and they are displaying in that priestly service the holiness and the purity of God and in verse 7 then one of these four creatures which we talked about last Sunday in Revelation chapter 5 one of these four angelic beings around the throne of God apparently takes from the throne or from before the throne these seven bowls of wrath and these seven bowls of wrath are given to the angels, one bowl to each angel, preparing them to go forth and execute these last judgments. And again, behind them in the temple with the doors open and even the door to the holy place open beyond that as they exit, you have the temple being filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one is able to enter that temple again until the seven plagues of the seven angels are complete. I think that there is a special way in which the coming of the Shekinah glory, the revelation of that glory here, is so appropriate for this moment in prophetic history. Um, because it has been associated not only with the proper worship of God, 
throughout the generations, but also associated with the presence of God coming to dwell with men. And when you have God in the wilderness establishing His presence among the Israelites, you have this Shekinah glory. And when you have God establishing them in the land under the kingdom of Solomon, then you have His presence coming in there into that established location, dwelling among them, and you have the Shekinah glory. And here we have the kingdom of God being ushered in, and the, the dwelling of God will again be with men. And so I think the Shekinah glory here uh, indicates that coming of the kingdom into its fullness, into its fruition, the coming of the presence of God to dwell with man. And so we see his holiness represented by this Shekinah and his glory so great that they're unable uh, to enter into it um, or to be in it. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. That's the end of verse 8. It ends there. Um, after the seven angels are given their bowls, given their commission, and before the judgments are poured out. And so I think what we've seen here in the scene and in the song and in the Shekinah is we've seen this connection between the holiness of God and His presence coming to be among men and the necessity of His judging sin. Because God is too pure to look upon sin and to dwell with sin. So sin must be judged, and it has to be judged for the sake of his own self-consistency. It has to be judged in order for him to dwell among men. It has to be judged in order for his kingdom to come into fullness. And as horrible as the seven judgments that follow um, in chapter 16 are, and they are, they are awful, uh, they are necessary if God is to dwell among men. And they're not only necessary, but they're actually the subject of the praise of this song. Because your judgments are made fully manifest. All nations will come and worship before you. Because your judgments are made known. They're revealed. They're put on display and into effect. And they're put on display and into effect against the backdrop of the Shekinah glory of God. So we see that connection. The glory of God. The holiness of God and the judgment that God has against sin. But I would propose that these judgments being made known are the final judgments being made known. These are not the first judgments of God to be made known. Here at the ending of this time period, God's final judgments are being made known, and there will be no more to be revealed after that. But they're not... The first judgments, there is a previous judgment. It's the judgment of God that has already been made known. And that's the same judgment by virtue of which these saints stand on the sea of glass. Singing this song, it's the judgment that we know was poured out on the Lamb. Because like Andrew said this morning, if you were here, all sin is judged. All sin is punished. No sin is overlooked. So the punishment for the sins of God's people we know was poured out upon Christ and that was the seven bowls in one. And that was a bowl of wrath like no other. And we know that he drank that cup until God was propitiated and until the holiness of God was vindicated. And Isaiah 53, familiar passage, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see in that chapter that it pleased the Lord to crush his son and to put him to grief and to make his soul an offering for sin. Romans 4 says he was delivered up for our trespasses. And 1 Peter 3 says he suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so though the judgments of God are finally and fully revealed in these seven bowls, I think the judgment of God is most clearly revealed in the cross of Christ. And then here in this text, following Revelation 15, as the judgment of God is about to be brought to its completion to be fully manifested, it will be manifested upon those who have rejected the holiness that he has provided through the Lamb. They've rejected the Messiah. So in this scene and in this song and in this Shekinah glory, again, we think we see the holiness and the glory of God, and we see that for purposes of his own self-consistency, his holiness must be vindicated, vindicated, which means that judgment must come on sin, and that must happen before the uh, holiness of God can dwell with men, before he brings his kingdom into fullness. So these seven plagues will be poured out on the earth, but those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb those who have received that redemption that we have in Jesus Christ through faith, those are standing before the throne. They're on this fiery sea of glass. They're praising the name of the Lord God Almighty, the King of saints, and acknowledging him as their king uh, because their sins were placed on Christ. We know that from other places in Scripture, and so there's no more judgment for you and for me. If our faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are the recipients of the blessings that flow from Christ having drunk first that cup of wrath in our place. Because as the song says, God the judge is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So I think we too can rejoice in the manifestations of the judgment of God. And we look at these seven awful judgments that are following the seven trumpets, that are following the seven seals, and it's difficult to find any joy in the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. But we certainly find joy in remembering the judgment of God poured out on our substitute, on our sin-bearer, on our wrath-taker, on our cup-drinker. And so with the Lamb in our view, I think we can sing with these same heavenly martyrs uh, this song of the redeemed from across the ages. Great and marvelous are your works of salvation, of propitiation, of substitutionary atonement, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, your way of redemption, your way of justly punishing my sin by placing it upon Christ, the one who bore your wrath in my place, O King of Saints. Who will not fear you and glorify your name for so great a salvation? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and... We find some of these things that are revealed in the revelation of Jesus Christ difficult to understand. And there are things that we do not know or understand. But we do know uh, that you are holy. And we know that you will be vindicated. And we know that there are those who will stand on the fiery sea of glass and praise you for deliverance. From their enemies and from the judgment that both their enemies and they justly deserved. And so we thank you that... At least we can understand those things, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be grateful, grateful for the judgment that you poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And Lord, we ask for mercy on our world. We ask for mercy uh, on our community, on our friends and neighbors and co-workers and others that do not know you, those who are rejecting the Messiah. We ask, Lord, that they might um, be awakened to new life and to faith, that they would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who drank the cup of wrath, that they need not experience the full and final revelation of your wrath, your self-vindication as you establish your holiness and your final uh, ushering in of your kingdom. So we ask, Lord, that every day uh, we would count that as, uh, as your mercy, Lord, that we would count that day of your tarrying as the day of salvation. So we pray that you would just cause us to be rejoicing in the great work of Christ as these saints did um, and rejoicing also in knowing that you will accomplish the salvation that is so needed in our day. Help us to be faithful in praying and faithful in speaking your truth to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the evening sermon at Hillcrest Bible Church. In addition to our website, hillcrestbible.org, you can follow us on Facebook under Hillcrest Bible Church or through Twitter under Hillcrest Bible. You can also subscribe to the sermon podcast on our sermons page or directly in iTunes.